High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Sammy and Dino. Hey, let's you and I do a song together now. Oh, 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 oh. And it ain't all Candyman and Bojangles. A singer, a dancer, an actor, a comedian, an impressionist, and an author. Mr. Entertainment. Here is Mr. Wonderful. Sammy Davis Jr. My most important meal is breakfast. If I'm not home by then, my wife really gets angry. Dean Martin is just a little bit lazy. Prefers golf to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dean Martin. Sammy Davis Jr.'s post-accident comeback show at Ciro's removed any and all doubt that he had what it took to cross over to the highest echelon of fame circa mid-50s Hollywood. It had been a friendly room, where a large percentage of those in attendance had been predisposed to root for him. But the skeptics, and there were some, had been fully won over too. A couple of years earlier, Sammy had approached Marlon Brando at a party and told him that he did an impression of him in his act. At that time, Brando had said, stop doing it. 
after the Ciro's show, Sammy received a telegram mea culpa. It read, Never dug you before. Dug you tonight. Marlon Brando. The only question was, what comes next? For today's episode, we're going to temporarily put Dean Martin's story on the back burner to focus on how Sammy Davis Jr. capitalized on the goodwill directed at him after his accident to break into two realms that had previously seemed completely cut off to him. Broadway and the movies. We'll begin by talking about how an offer from one of the great pop songwriters of the 20th century helped Sammy get out of a tight spot with the mob. We'll conclude by talking about the virtuoso performance Sammy gives in a movie musical so controversial that its rights holders are still making it almost impossible to see. Join us, won't you, for part four of Sammy and Dino. Sammy technically made his movie debut in 1933, at the age of seven, in two Vitaphone short films. The best remembered of these is called Rufus Jones for President. It revolves around a black mother's fantasy that her young son is elected to the highest office in the land. The execution of this premise is somehow simultaneously utopian, absurdist, and extremely regressive, even for 1933. Here is little Sammy's character Rufus getting a pep talk from his mother, played by Ethel Waters. Is I going to be a great man, Mammy? You sure is. You's going to be president. Me? Sure. They has kings your age. I don't see no reason why they can't have presidents. Besides, the book says anybody born here can be a president. Ain't that something? Stay on your own side of the fence. Don't try to cross the line. Just like a cloud that's dark and dense, you have a silver lining. You can watch this whole film on YouTube, but you may or may not want to. I find it, at best, extremely cringeworthy, and at worst, a kind of post-talky remake of the parts of The Birth of a Nation that present Black people with political power as a nightmare for white people. But it does show little Sammy tap dancing, which is something to see, and Ethel Waters gives a powerful performance of a very complicated song about how racism is now over. Sammy performed in another short in 1947 as part of the Wilmaston Trio, but for all intents and purposes, his on-screen acting career was dormant from 1933 until the late 1950s. We've already talked about how Sammy's options were limited because of the limited thinking of Hollywood. But by 1956, that wasn't the main problem holding Sammy back from movie stardom. By then, Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier were both considered promising new stars, 
having played meaningful roles in movies, that at least gestured at taking the Black American experience seriously. And Dorothy Dandridge had been nominated for an Oscar for a film she had starred in with Belafonte, Carmen Jones. The success of that epic musical with a mostly Black cast inspired MGM to start thinking about making an adaptation of St. Louis Woman, a stage musical starring the Nicholas Brothers and Pearl Bailey, which had been a hit on Broadway a decade earlier. The studio approached Sammy about starring in the film, but negotiations proved to be impossible because Will Mastin still owned Sammy's contract, and he was loath to agree to anything that would result in a hiatus from the live performances that kept Mastin and Sam Sr. afloat. Sammy wanted stardom above and beyond the Will Mastin trio, and by 1956, it looked like that stardom was attainable. He was friendly with both Poitier and Belafonte, who made him feel incredibly insecure about his looks and height, but he also felt that talent-wise, he could run circles around them, if given the shot. But he couldn't do anything unless Will Mastin let him do it. Even though Sammy pocketed just about a quarter of the big paydays he bought to the trio, even though he had no functional control over the course of his career, he refused to break his contract with Mastin. Because to do so, to Sammy, would mean throwing his own father under the bus. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Will Mastin might have owned Sammy, but that was all he owned. And just like Dean Martin before him, Sammy managed to get what he wanted, at least monetarily, by going directly to the men who were really running the racket. Sammy began making side deals with nightclub owners, 
almost all of them mob-affiliated. In order to get the walking around money Sammy needed, in order to pay for the lifestyle he wanted. The lifestyle that he thought he needed to be living, in order to keep up with the stars, most of them white, whose level he wanted to meet and maybe even exceed. Sammy got in the habit of convincing the club owners, and their bag men, to let him borrow against his salary on future engagements. That meant he was often spending the entire trio's money before his ostensible partners in the act could get their hands on it, before their agents could take their cut. He'd often arrange future gigs to pay off debts from past gigs. It got to the point where the FBI was kept busy investigating death threats against Sammy, arising from debts to gangsters that he had gone too long without repaying. At one point, Chicago gangster Sam Giancana gave Sammy a large chunk of money to pay off other gangsters. Sammy thought he was seeking a legitimate solution to these problems by appealing to his then-agent at WME, George Wood. He asked Wood for a loan of $250,000. Wood refused to give it to him. Then, when Wood was out of town, Sammy asked another agent at WME for the money. And that agent came through. When Wood came back and learned Sammy had gone around his back, he brought Sammy up to his office on the 41st floor and told him all would be forgiven if Sammy would sign a five-year extension of his contract with the agency. Sammy demurred and mentioned that he had been thinking of tossing WME over for their biggest rival, MCA. Wood threatened to throw Sammy over and out the window unless he signed. So, Sammy signed. The agent was as fear-inducing as any gangster, and his tactics for ensuring his ownership of Sammy were not that different. At one point, Harry Belafonte proposed a deal to get Sammy out of this kind of trouble, once and for all. Belafonte had now amassed enough power that he had his own record label and was earning $350,000 a year, about $3.5 million in 2021 dollars. If Sammy would sign a record contract with him, Belafonte would pay the gangsters and the club owners himself, and the proceeds of Sammy's records could go to paying Belafonte back. Sammy could then keep all of his future live performance income and get out of his endless cycle of deals with the devil. Sammy thought about it for a day and then called Belafonte and said, I can't discuss it, but the answer is I can't. When Belafonte asked for further explanation, Sammy was cryptic, saying only, what's at stake is bigger than that. Belafonte wrote later that he heard through the grapevine that Sammy, quote, thought it rather presumptuous of me to think I could step into his life and play that much of a role, have that much power over him. Surely part of the issue, whether Sammy wanted to admit this or not, 
was that Will Maston already had that power over him. To take Belafonte's offer, he would have had to abandon his family. Sammy got thrown a lifeline out of this seemingly impossible situation, thanks to Julie Stein, a songwriter who, with Sammy Kahn, was responsible for a number of Sinatra hits, including I Fall in Love Too Easily. By the early 50s, Stein had made a name for himself as a composer for Broadway hits that became movie musicals. He wrote Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and Just in Time for Bells Are Ringing, which we'll talk about later in this season. In the mid-50s, after seeing Sammy perform in both New York and LA, he became convinced that Davis could anchor a Broadway show. The problem was that Broadway, at that moment, was even less hospitable to black stars than Hollywood. Stein thought that if they found the right vehicle, Sammy's talent could change that. Sammy agreed, but he was adamant that he didn't want to just move his nightclub act to the Broadway stage. He wanted to do a proper book show, meaning that he'd play a character. Meaning that even if people came to see him sing and dance, they'd walk away knowing he could act. But the material was difficult to get right. Beyond the challenges posed by the racism of Broadway and its customers, there was also the problem that Will Mastin would only make Sammy available if the show also provided work for Mastin and Sam Sr. Most of the top Broadway book writers balked at the challenge of having to find something to do for two old black vaudevillians. Others had no idea what kind of story Sammy would be credible in. Apparently, the issue was not that he had never played a character before. The issue was that all the potential writers were white, and most couldn't imagine a story about a black protagonist. One suggested to Stein that the easiest thing to do would be to have Sammy's character rape a white woman. Stein ultimately decided to work off a pitch from two TV writers, Joe Stein and Will Glixman, who had submitted an outline about a Black performer who has to overcome his own fear and insecurity to make it in the white show business world. This would allow Sammy, his dad, and his uncle to play versions of themselves to wedge their nightclub show into a dramatic framework that would give Sammy a chance to stretch. The whole point of the show was to elevate Sammy into legitimate stardom, which meant elevating him above the rest of the Willmaston trio. But Sammy's uncle and father bristled at the way the show sidelined them. Mastin approached Stein about a line in the show that he thought diminished the influence he had had on Sammy's career. Stein thought, oh my God, he's bringing reality into this. Somehow, it all came together, and Sammy arrived in New York to start rehearsing the show that was now called Mr. Wonderful in December 1955, on his 30th birthday. Stein asked him what he wanted to do that night. Sammy said he wanted to go to the 21 Club, but he was worried they wouldn't let him in. 
Stein had to call ahead to make sure there wouldn't be a racial incident when they arrived. In its first act, Mr. Wonderful was a pretty standard rise-to-fame narrative, followed by a second act that consisted solely of a version of the Will Maston Trio's greatest hits, including Sammy's Al Jolson, which he performed in blackface. The reviews for Mr. Wonderful were generally bad, although Sammy was often singled out for praise. And the show sold tickets, proving all the doubters wrong. In 1956, a black man could headline a Broadway show if that black man was the multi-talented, incredibly likable Sammy Davis Jr. In fact, Sammy brought new audiences to Broadway, black audiences, who hadn't felt welcome or served by New York theater to this extent before, and Hollywood audiences. For a movie star or starlet, Visiting the East Coast, a stop at Mr. Wonderful and a backstage visit with Sammy became de rigueur. Some of the bigger stars would visit with Sammy on stage. During the second half of the show, the trio performed within a set designed to look like a nightclub, and the biggest stars who came to the show would watch from the onstage tables. Rex Harrison and Julie Andrews then starring in the Broadway sensation My Fair Lady, showed up on stage at Mr. Wonderful one night. Once, Jerry Lewis took his onstage seat during a number, and he claimed it brought the house down. That was nothing compared to the night when Walter Winchell came to the show and took the stage to give an impromptu speech about how Sammy's stardom fit into the overall project of American patriotism. These surprise cameos fit into the show's vibe of spontaneity. Sammy would riff between numbers, announcing that night's baseball scores or making ripped-from-the-headlines jokes. It wasn't just the racial makeup of the cast that made Mr. Wonderful feel cutting-edge. The show was a living thing. Mr. Wonderful ran for a full year, and it was a truly wonderful time for Sammy. He had a romance with one of his co-stars, Cheetah Rivera. After the show, he'd head to Atlantic City and party all night, sometimes performing a midnight show or even a 7 a.m. show to help pay off his debts. These would be solo shows, snuck in while Mastin and Sam Sr. were asleep. They allowed him to experiment with taking and holding the stage on his own. After Mr. Wonderful, it seemed unfathomable that he'd ever have to go back to equal partnership in a trio. And yet, there were eight years left on Mastin's contract. But Sammy would take charge of his own career much sooner. The game would change after his grown-up movie career had finally begun. The movie that gave Sammy his first starring role began life as a Depression-era play about love amongst Polish immigrants in Chicago. That play, Anna Lucasta, by Philip Jordan, found new life in 1944, when it was mounted by an all-Black cast, including Ruby Dee, at the American Negro Theater in Harlem. 
because that production was a success. In 1949, the play was made into a movie with an all-white cast because Hollywood wasn't really able to deal with a movie that took Black people seriously in 1949. A decade later, when the film rights to Anna Lucasta reverted back to the writer, an independent production company felt up to the challenge of trying to make a film that looked like the American Negro theater version. Anna Lucasta would offer Sammy Davis Jr. his first significant adult film role, and he'd be cast as a man in pursuit of an actress who he knew something about pursuing, Eartha Kitt. Eartha's Anna is a fallen woman who meets Sammy's sailor Danny in a San Diego dive bar. Danny is leaving the Navy to become a cab driver, and he asks Anna to shack up with him. Just then, she gets what seems like a more respectable offer. Her father, who had kicked her out of the family home, asks her to come back. Once there, Anna learns that her family wants to marry her off to the son of a family friend who has come into some money. But this arranged marriage turns out to be a love match until Anna's alcoholic father, unable to forget his daughter's past, wrecks the couple's future on their wedding day. Anna runs off with Danny, resigned to a life of disillusion, until she's drawn back to her family once again, much to the relief of Danny, who never really wanted to be tied down to begin with. With its sparkling black-and-white cinematography and jazz score, Anna Lucasta has the aesthetics of a sexy noir from the jump. But it soon becomes extremely earnest, almost a kitchen sink domestic drama. What's notable about it, especially for 1958, is that it's about middle-class Black people whose problems have nothing to do with their race or racism. No one in the film speaks in dialect, and the substance of the story and the treatment of it is much closer to the era's melodramas about troubled white people, like The Rose Tattoo, than it is to any movie white Hollywood had made with an all-black cast previously. Sammy is barely in the first hour of the movie, but he makes up for his absence in the film's last act. His most effective work is silent, in a jazzy montage late in the film, which gives him a chance to dance and act in the midst of Anna's drunken breakdown. Sammy's character is not a hero. Far from it, he's depicted as cowardly and debased. It's an extremely interesting choice of a debut role for a performer who so badly wanted to be liked, especially when you consider that he'd essentially play the devil in his next movie. Anna Lucasta was basically an indie film, and it was not a hit. That the industry and their audiences were not yet ready for a movie with a Black cast that avoided stereotypes is perhaps thrown into relief by the movie Sammy made next, a massive Hollywood production directed and written by white men set in a fantasy version of a Black ghetto. To the extent that it offered more big parts for Black stars than any other movie being made in Hollywood at the time, Porgy and Bess functioned then, and now, 
as a referendum on Black Hollywood stardom, circa 1958. George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, based on a novel and play by white Charleston native Dubose Hayward, tells the story of life in Catfish Row, a fictional Carolina gullet tenement. The disabled Porgy falls in love with the beautiful addict Bess and shelters her from her violent sometime boyfriend. Porgy ends up killing the bad boyfriend, and Bess is convinced by her drug dealer, called Sportin' Life, to travel with him to New York. The story ends with Porgy, whose only method of transport is a goat cart, desperately following after Bess. When Porgy and Bess was first performed in Boston in 1935, Gershwin was praised as the Abraham Lincoln of Negro music. I guess this was based on the simplistic understanding of Lincoln as a white man who quote-unquote freed the slaves. But Porgy and Bess does not exactly liberate the music of actual Black Americans, so much as it appropriates certain traditions of Black music and, for lack of a better word, integrates those traditions into a narrative and form designed for what was assumed to be a largely white audience. Porgy and Bess was revolutionary as an American opera written to be performed by an all-Black cast of classically trained singers. But it is also written in a dialect that felt instantly dated and cringeworthy to some. Still, some of Gershwin's Porgy and Bess songs later became classics as pop singles, performed in the unique styles of singers such as Billie Holiday, and Nina Simone. My man's gone now Ain't no use of listening By the time Samuel Goldwyn became determined to make a film of Porgy and Bess in the 50s, Gershwin's original conception and composition had been altered significantly by Ruben Mamoulian. Mamoulian was the Armenian director who, in the middle of a long career as a Hollywood auteur, during which his output ranged from the classic musical Love Me Tonight to The Mark of Zorro, directed Porgy and Bess on the stage in 1935. Joseph Horowitz, the author of a book about Mamoulian's contributions to Porgy and Bess, has written that though the show had been gently criticized for its lack of authenticity by some Black musicians, such as Duke Ellington, it was not generally thought to be a repository of stereotypes until the production of the 1959 film version. It's hard to know exactly which is chicken and which is egg, but certainly after that film was released, Black performers who had been considered for the film and those who were cast in it, declared that they had been skeptical from the outset, based on the material itself. Goldwyn's first choice for the part of Porgy 
was Harry Belafonte. By the late 50s, Belafonte had established himself as a heartthrob. With his lighter skin and identification with Caribbean music and aesthetics, he was considered safe for white female viewers to lust over. In his autobiography, Belafonte quotes historian Henry Louis Gates's observation that the actor's persona was something like what would happen if one were to, quote, brown up Tab Hunter. All of this is to explain why Goldwyn desperately wanted Belafonte for this movie. But Belafonte, who had already been a civil rights activist for years, wouldn't touch the project with a 10-foot pole. To me, Belafonte later explained, the whole Gershwin production was racially demeaning. Elsewhere, Belafonte praised Porgy's remarkable music, but said Gershwin couldn't overcome Hayward's racist story. So then Goldwyn went after Sidney Poitier, telling an agent, I want that boy to play Porgy. Poitier was not interested. He was aligned with Belafonte in believing the material to be full of hopeless stereotypes about the misery and degradation of the Black experience filtered through the white gaze. Poitier had turned down what he considered to be a less offensive part a few years earlier, when he was really broke and needed the money, because while he wasn't sure it would hurt progress for Black Americans, he was pretty sure it wouldn't help. Playing the emasculated Porgy, who spends most of the show literally on his knees, could actually hurt. Goldwyn tried to woo Poitier by telling him that the film would be, quote, one of the greatest things that has ever happened for the Black race. This struck Poitier as what he called outrageous bullshit, but ultimately he agreed to do the movie as part of the deal being made to secure his part in The Defiant Ones. The latter film, in which Poitier and Tony Curtis would play escaped convicts chained to one another, was aligned with what Poitier would later describe as, quote, a hell of a shot for us, a breakthrough, not only for me, but for other Blacks in films, speaking directly to the point of how Black people want to see themselves on the screen. Poitier ultimately decided that that shot had a chance of doing more good than the harm that could be done by Porgy and Bess. So he agreed to make both films. In contrast, Sammy actively fought for the part of sport in life. Though Samuel Goldwyn wanted to cast Cab Calloway, Sammy wouldn't take no for an answer. He called in favors from Frank Sinatra, Jack Benny, and other white friends, asking them to put in a good word for him with Goldwyn. He took the floor one night at Judy Garland's house to perform selected songs from Porgy and Bess in character. Goldwyn was not impressed. In a conversation with his wife about the possibility of casting Davis, Goldwyn reportedly referred to Sammy as that monkey. But the producer completely changed his mind when Cab Calloway passed on the project. He showed up one night in Sammy's nightclub dressing room and said, the part is yours. Mamoulian had been meant to direct Goldwyn's film production, 
until a fire destroyed his sets, causing a long delay in shooting. There have long been rumors that this fire was set by arsonists representing the Black community who didn't want the film to be made. In any case, before production began again, Goldwyn fired Mamoulian and replaced him with Otto Preminger, who had not only directed Dorothy Dandridge and Carmen Jones, but had also had an affair with her. That affair was over now, and Preminger wasn't going to offer special treatment to Dorothy or to anyone else. On the first day of work, Preminger assembled his cast and told them, I want you to know that I grew up in Europe. For me, there is no difference between black and white people. So if you behave badly, I will be just as tough with you as I would be with white actors. According to Preminger, at that meeting, Sammy piped up and said he wouldn't be able to attend the first rehearsal. It's Rosh Hashanah, Sammy said. It's the Jewish New Year. Preminger responded, I'm Jewish too, Sammy, and I'll be here on Monday. Sammy responded, There's a difference. You're an old Jew. I'm a new Jew. Preminger, who was known as an emotionally abusive tyrant, had an immediately combative relationship with Goldwyn, which put additional stress on an already troubled production. Preminger believed that the studio didn't really understand the material. When he showed them the finished film, they worried that it was too downbeat. One of them suggested that I had a last scene in which Porgy gets up and walks, Preminger recalled. Needless to say, I refused. Preminger's cut of Porgy and Bess was released. Bosley Crowther gave it a positive review in the New York Times, calling it a stunning, exciting, and moving film. He singled out Sammy Davis Jr. as the sharpest and most insinuating figure in the show. But virtually no one else was pleased. Dorothy Dandridge, who played Bess, was fairly diplomatic in discussing the film, but even she said she thought it would have been more effective if, instead of being set in 1912 in a fictional ghetto shot on highly artificial sets on a Hollywood backlot, if it had been, quote, shot in the streets, in the shack-ridden quarters that fester throughout the South. James Baldwin published an essay in which he commended both Hayward and Gershwin's versions of the story, but wrote that Preminger turned Porgy and Bess into a white man's vision of Negro life, which seemed to sexually fetishize its downtrodden subjects. Lorraine Hansberry, the playwright whose landmark A Raisin in the Sun debuted on Broadway in 1959, concurred with Baldwin and actually debated the matter with Preminger on TV. That's something I wish we could see. Something else I wish you could see is Porgy and Bess. As of right now, it is basically currently unavailable. It has never been made commercially available on any home video or streaming format. And as far as I know, there is just one 35mm print that is in condition for circulation. The film's scarcity has been blamed on the Gershwin estate, 
which, according to an article in The Hollywood Reporter, had most of the existing prints of the film destroyed. Though George had died by the time the film was made, according to an executor of the Gershwin estate, the composer's brother, Ira, thought Preminger's film was, quote, a piece of shit. Producer Samuel Goldwyn's estate has also denied many requests to screen the movie. However, when The Met in New York launched a revival of Gershwin's opera in 2019, the Film Society at Lincoln Center managed to screen the film for one night only. I went to that screening, and I enjoyed the film largely for its performances and for the bizarre staginess of its production. The Catfish Row sets look like the cardboard facades that they are. As Goldwyn biographer A. Scott Berg put it, the worst sets money could buy. Much of the action is performed in front of an unmoving camera that seems to take the position of a theatergoer. The sense of artificiality is only enhanced by the fact that Dandridge and Poitier, who never pretended to be singers, are clearly lip-syncing. Within this context, Sammy's performance pops, but not necessarily because he's doing his own singing. This is not a movie in which that kind of verisimilitude matters. Where Dandridge and Poitier seem to be going for emotional realism while literally borrowing other people's voices, Sammy uses his own voice, his own fully unique physical presence, to bring to life the film's most fantastic character, the preening, dandy drug dealer, the devil on Bess's shoulder whose hepcat seduction proves to be a too tempting retreat from reality for her to refuse. That Sammy was the member of the main cast least afraid of dancing with stereotypes is manifest in his costume which includes the frock, coat, and white gloves associated with minstrels. In his autobiography, Yes, I Can, Sammy says nothing about these accessories or any other controversy associated with the film. He does acknowledge that costume designer Irene Sheriff forced him to wear skin-tight pants with nothing underneath. And when she watched him get dressed, to ensure he wasn't wearing underwear, Sammy says he felt, quote, like a stripper. He has nothing to say in that book about how he felt about the material or how the movie was received. He must have been proud of it, or at least his performance in it, because he directed Jess Rand to purchase the 1958 version of For Your Consideration ads in the trades, in the hope that he would be nominated for an Oscar which he was not. The ads featured an image of Sammy in costume from the film, with those white gloves featured prominently. This may have been a misstep, although an understandable one. Few have gone broke overestimating Hollywood's nostalgia for minstrelsy. Perhaps more than any other film from the 1950s from a major director and featuring major stars, Porgy and Bess's reputation feels unstable. The reviews and protests it drew in 1958 were heavily informed by a political climate in transition, 
and due to its unavailability, that reception has not had a chance to naturally evolve with the times. When I attended the screening of Porgy and Bess in 2019, I remember that reactions varied widely, both in person and on Twitter. But to my surprise, it seems that no major critic or publication ran a review or reaction after this historic screening. I do not know why they did not. It makes me wish I had written about it at the time, not just to capture my own response, but also to try to take the temperature of the room. If you want to see it for yourself, as of this writing, there is a low-quality bootleg version that you can easily find on a streaming video site if you look for it. If you just want to hear what Davis sounded like as Sport in Life, there are many less dubious options. He recorded a Porgy and Bess album, which was released concurrent with the film, on which he sings all the male parts, and Carmen McRae sings as Bess. Sammy also performed versions of all of those songs, on television and in concerts, for the rest of his career. Here he is doing There's a Boat That's Leaving for New York on a Frank Sinatra TV special. There's a boat that's leaving soon for New York. Come with me, that's where... We belong, sister. This is a really interesting performance because it seems like Sammy is merging the flirting with minstrelsy character he played in the movie, complete with those gloves, with the onstage persona that he'd soon perfect as part of the Rat Pack, which would be the next phase of Sammy's life and career. Soon after Porgy and Bess was released, the Will Maston trio finally disbanded, with a whimper and not a bang. Will and Sam Sr. simply agreed to retire. They would stay on Sammy's payroll for the rest of their lives, but finally, in his late 30s, Sammy stopped working with and essentially for his father and became the solo artist that he was always meant to be. His social circle had also changed. Over the previous few years, he had grown estranged from Jeff Chandler. According to Tony Curtis, for Sammy, it was an elective estrangement. Curtis accused Davis of throwing Chandler over in order to get even closer to Frank Sinatra. Through Frank, he saw another career, Curtis alleged. He didn't see anything with Jeff. With Frank, he could see that Las Vegas was open to him. We will finally get to the Rat Pack years in two weeks. First, next week, we'll talk about Dean Martin's leap into the unknown of solo stardom and the handful of really interesting movies he made in the late 1950s during a brief, fleeting period in which he actually seemed to care about making art. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. 
That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We are on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. Perfect for the holidays. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast and get lots of bonus content. You must remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and sometimes glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all of the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, 